This Easter morning, we will be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. You can find this in your bulletin, or in your Bible, or on the screen behind me. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. On Easter morning, this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you. So glad to be able to talk about the resurrection of Christ this morning. You know, recently, the uh, Bono, who's the lead singer of the Irish rock band U2, was interviewed, and he talked about an episode in his life when he was 14 years old. It was uh, at his grandfather's funeral. His, mother, his mother's father had died. And right there at the graveside, while they were lowering the casket of his grandfather down, his mother, right at that time, died of an aneurysm. And you know, that really scarred Bono for his life. One of the things he talks about in his journey to faith is that he came, through, came to faith through the doorway of grief and sadness. Talks about being haunted by death, and he talks about how recently he went to Jerusalem, he took a trip to Jerusalem, and he went to the hill where it is, it is said that Jesus died. Sometimes that hill is called Calvary, sometimes it's called Golgotha, which stands for the place of the skull. And Bono talks about how he looked at that hill and he looked at the place where Jesus died and he says, I saw where death died. I saw where death died. And Bono talks about how for a lot of us, uh, the, the fear of death is part of the psychology of our lives. We have different ways to treat it and different days, different ways to deal with it. The Bible teaches that Christ rose from the dead. The Bible teaches uh, some amazing news that Christ himself defeated death. So when Bono says, when he looks at that hill, he says, that's where death died. How do you and I know that that's true? 
Can that really be true that on that hill death died? How do we know? And the way that we know that that's the case is because of the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection that Christ is risen from the dead. So if it's true, if it's true that Christ rose from the dead, that is the greatest news that you and I could ever hear. Now, it's very tempting when you're a pastor on Easter Sunday to do a big song and dance and do all kinds of things, but you know what I wanna do this morning? I wanna walk back through this story as it's told in Mark chapter 16, verses one through eight. Now, this is the end of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, one of the things I would encourage you to do, whether you are here this morning as a person who's exploring the faith or you're a skeptic or you're a longtime believer, I would strongly encourage you to read the entire Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel, but it begins in Mark chapter one, verse one. So we're in, in Mark 16 today, but I wanna let you how it reads let, let you know how it reads in Mark chapter one, verse one. Listen to these words. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we hear that word beginning, it reminds us of Genesis 1.1. It reminds us of how when God created the world, it was a perfect world. But it was a world that became scarred by the fall in Genesis chapter three, and things like death and other things. And so when Mark in his gospel says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying that something new is being introduced, that God is going to remake, God is going to recreate the world. He's gonna give to the world a new beginning. That's what the story of Jesus is about. And this morning, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, what you realize is that Christ rose to give you a new beginning in your life. The word gospel in Mark chapter one and verse one means good news. And it was a word that was, was actually was not invented by the Bible or by the writers of the Bible. You and I, when we hear the word gospel, we think of the four gospels, we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think about the good news. But in, in Roman times back then, the word gospel was the announcement of the good news, either of the birth of an emperor or of victory in war. So when Mark takes that word, he says the gospel is good news, it is this new beginning, it is the story of Jesus, this is the best news that you've ever heard. And that's why we talk about the four gospels, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna take a look at Mark chapter 16 and we're gonna answer this question this morning. Who is this good news for? And we're gonna see that this good news, first of all, is good news for the skeptic. Secondly, it is good news for the believer or the one who believes and thirdly, it is good news for the whole world. And we're gonna see all of that in this passage. So you've got your bulletin handy. We might want to just talk through and walk through uh, your, uh, that, if you see that passage here in Mark chapter 16. We're gonna talk first of all about how the gospel is good news for the skeptic. Good news for the skeptic. It's interesting to note, Sarah talked about being skeptical about walking on the eggs. 
There were skeptics in the time when the Gospels were written. We'll find that in the scriptures. There were skeptics back then and there were skeptics today. And there were, there were famous skeptics throughout history. One of those was a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. You might remember C.S. Lewis was the author of Chronicles of Narnia, the great children's series. He was the author of Mere Christianity and many, many other books. In fact, he was one of the towering scholars of the 20th century, but when he taught at Cambridge, when he became a professor at Oxford, and he developed all, he was a man of great learning, but he went through a period in his life where he was a, he was a well-known skeptic, skeptical of the Christian faith. When he became a Christian around 1931, he says that when he became a Christian, he was the most reluctant, most dejected, and the most reluctant convert when he came to Christ in that time. Now, if you, know, if you get into the story of C.S. Lewis, you see that he was influenced by great minds like G.K. Chesterton. He was influenced by J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. These were believers who had an influence on C.S. Lewis. But he was a great skeptic and he was the most reluctant convert. You might be aware that there was a movie that just came out recently about, about C.S. Lewis as the most reluctant convert. We, th we look at skeptics like C.S. Lewis and we look at others. As I think about why did C.S. Lewis become a Christian, one of the things we might say, and I think it would be true, is he was influenced by evidence. Christianity made sense to him. But I think there was even more than that that influenced C.S. Lewis. There was a poem that was written called The Hound of Heaven. I like what Sharif said, that we might think that we're seeking God, but really what's going on is that he is seeking us. And I think even C.S. Lewis would say, the great intellect, the great mind that he was, that intellect alone will not lead a person to Christ. Because you can have a great in intellect, but you can still be um, a, a, sort of a sort of a skeptic who doesn't even want to listen to the truth. Someone has said there are two types of, of skeptics in the world. There are emotional skeptics who, have, who really don't even want to look at the, in, at the evidence, but there are also what you might call progressive skeptics or open-minded skeptics who would say, I would be open to looking at the evidence. And so I think there was a time in C.S. Lewis's life when he became an open skeptic and he considered the evidence. As we look at this passage, I want to talk about two forms of evidence that we see in this passage and why this story of the resurrection is good news for the skeptic. If you find yourself as a skeptic this morning, one of the things we want you to do is to, number one, realize that we uh, respect where you're at in your faith journey. I happen to have been a skeptic and, uh, for a long period in my life. I was not a famous skeptic like C.S. Lewis, but most of, most of us are not famous skeptics. But we want to be satisfied that what we believe is true, that the resurrection story is true. And so the gospel accounts talk about that. And there are two pieces of evidence to think about. Let's go into the passage now. Take a look at it in your bulletin. In Mark 16, it says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So you read this story and you find some time references. There was a Sabbath. 
You find the names of these three women, these three women that were there at the crucifixion of Christ as well. You see this burial practice of anointing him and wanting to, to serve. He hadn't been anointed yet. Criminals were not anointed, but they wanted to anoint him in a proper way. So they bought spices after the Sabbath was over, which would have been 6 p.m. Saturday night, probably went to the mall, bought some spices, and then the next morning, very early, before it was light, they get up and they make their way to where they knew that Jesus had been buried. Notice verse two, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Kind of comical, because this big stone was there. It was a very, a very great stone, a very large stone, and they're just wondering how they're even going to get in to the tomb. A couple pieces of evidence here that I want to point out that you see not only in the Gospel of Mark, but also in Matthew and Luke and John, and that is the evidence of eyewitness testimony. When you read the stories of the Gospels, one of the things you find is that the resurrection of Christ, there were eyewitnesses at the time. The Gospel of Mark, some people think, well, maybe, the God, maybe this story was a hoax that was just written maybe two, three, four centuries after the events, but the reality is we know it is well attested that the Gospel of Mark was written very early after the events that Mark wrote about, so much so that there were people who were still alive who would remember it. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus appeared, he appeared to more than 500 people, and Paul said most of those people are still alive. And so what you had was eyewitness testimony of these events, the empty tomb, as we'll see here with these three women, but you also see throughout in the appearances of Christ. But one other thing we need to point out here is the observation that uh, the first people to visit the empty tomb, the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ were not men, they were women. Now why is that significant? Well I point that out because in that time, the testimony of women was not acceptable in a court of law, only the testimony of men. And so the fact that the gospel writers like Mark would say that the women were the first one to witness the empty tomb, to witness his resurrection, is something that they would not do had they made up this story, but that was the truth. It was, it was women who would do that. So that's one piece of evidence that as people, as skeptics over the years, like C.S. Lewis and others have looked at it, they looked at the eyewitness testimony. That is very valuable. Now today, I mean, eyewitness testimony, you've got, you've got iPhones, you've got videos, you've got You've got YouTube, stuff can be posted around the world when you're wanting to establish the fact of something. But that, back then, all they had was the testimony of eyewitnesses and they recorded, they kept track of the testimony of those eyewitnesses. Now you and I might say, it's still a myth, it's still a legend, it's still a hoax, it cannot have been true. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said one of the problems with us is we can have a kind of uh, chronological snobbery where we just assume that the writers of the New Testament were ignorant people, that they would fall for a hoax, that they would fall for a myth. That's the, that's the chronological snobbery that we can fall into. But we need to realize 
that the gospel writers and the eyewitnesses, it was amazing the way they documented it. It is, it is phenomenal. You and I today, we have no problem believing that Julius Caesar fought the Gallic Wars, but the only way we know that is that there's 11 manuscripts, manuscript copies, that were written by Julius Caesar himself, and that's it. And it's never questioned in history that Caesar fought the Gallic Wars, whereas with the New Testament, you have thousands of manuscript, manuscript copies dated much closer to the events than Caesar's Gallic Wars and the manuscripts that we have. So there is a whole field of evidence based upon eyewitness testimony. The second thing, the second piece of evidence for, for skeptics to think about is the empty tomb itself. So we go on in verse four. It says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. So they go into the tomb. The stones rolled away. These women go in, and they see this guy there. And the guy says, see where they laid him. And the body wasn't there. So the Bible says that what happened on that day is that the tomb was empty. Now you could say, well, why is that a significant piece of evidence? Well, because the body was never found. The body of Jesus was never found. So one of the things that Molly and I love to do is we like to, we like to watch shows on Netflix. We've discovered this whole series of whodunit shows on Netflix that were based on novels by Harlan Coben, which were crime thrillers, and we would watch some of these shows and it would be so engrossing because we have to figure out who the killer was, how did it happen, and there's all these little pieces of evidence and you sort of get into detective mode. Well, what you have to do with the empty tomb of Jesus is you almost have to get into a kind of detective mode and say, why was the tomb empty? Where was the body? Why was it not produced? So some people think, well, maybe the religious authorities stole the body and took it out of the tomb. That couldn't have been the case because when the disciples, the apostles, and others were preaching that Christ had risen from the dead, the enemies of Christianity could have produced the body and they would have killed it in the grave. Now you could say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. You could say that would happen. Now remember, we know from other gospel accounts that there was a a 12 to 16 man Roman guard with a Roman seal on the stone. And so it would not have been easy for the disciples to just waltz in, defeat all those Roman guards and take the body. But even if they had, they would have known that Jesus had not risen from the dead. And yet 11 of the 12 apostles went and died martyrs' deaths for what they believed. And you might say, well, people might always, there are always throughout history people that have died for a lost cause, but yes, but if they did, they knew it was a lost cause, and that's what people would not do. Very unlikely that the, the disciples stole the body. Then you could say, well, maybe somebody else did. Grave Robbers Anonymous. Maybe they went in, and they went and took the body, and they stole it, but the body simply has never been found. They could have not gone past those Roman centurions. So a big question to think about if you're a skeptic is what happened to the body, and is there an answer to that? There was a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf who thought a lot about this. I want to tell you about him. Simon, Dr. Simon Greenleaf was another famous skeptic. He was the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard University. He believed that the resurrection 
was a hoax. And what he decided to do was he decided to research all of this evidence for the resurrection of Christ to prove that it was false. And what he chose to do was to the, examine the evidence in light of the rules of justice in the court of law. What he found out was that on the contrary, according to the rules of justice, the evidence was there for the resurrection of Christ. And Dr. Simon Greenleaf, as a result of that, went ahead and committed his life to Christ and wrote a whole book about the testimony of the four evangelists in light of the laws administered in the courts of justice, saying that it was true that there was evidence for it. He makes a very, very strong claim about the evidence for skeptics. Well, I share all that with you because when we talk about how this gospel, this resurrection story is good news for skeptics, what I like is that the Bible does not overlook or leapfrog the importance of evidence. God does not expect you to set aside your mind in order to believe something in your heart. God does not expect you to simply believe something against the evidence or against the facts. And the Bible addresses that and that is part of this story. Now let me move on. Let me talk about the second thing in this passage. When we become a believer in Christ, one of the things we find is that the gospel is not just good news for the skeptic because it's based upon evidence, but the resurrection of Christ is also good news for the believer. And I want to talk about that briefly from verse 6, which is the key verse in this passage. Now keep in mind uh, what these women encountered when they went to the tomb was they encountered what, the, what, what Mark records was a young man. When they went into the tomb, the young man was in there and he was, he was dressed in brilliant white. So if, if it had been ordinary white clothes and you go into that tomb in the midst of that darkness, you would have not seen the brightness of his clothes. But there was a brightness there because we learned from the other gospels that the women had encountered an angel. Now why an angel? Why is that important? Now this is really key to get this when it comes to faith. The evidence for the resurrection of Christ is strong enough to say that there is, no, there is no rational reason to not believe the resurrection of Christ. But that alone does not result in saving faith. Remember C.S. Lewis, he had all the evidence, but it was really, there was actually something that happened in his heart. So the role of the angel was to provide what we might call revelation from God and explanation from God about what happened or why it happened. So I wanna clarify something about faith. A lot of people believe that what faith is is intellectual assent to the claims of Christianity. That is true to a point, but faith is actually something more than that. It is trusting in Christ for why he came. And this is why the gospel is good news for the believer. I want you to notice three things that the angel says in verse six. Catch this. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. So he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there, uh, Nazareth is a, was a small town. In fact, Molly and I have been to Nazareth. We've seen it, a real town, a small town just a few miles west of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, and that's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth. But what we have here is an historical marker about where Jesus was raised in the town 
of Nazareth. And it's good for us to know that when we think about faith in Jesus, that Jesus was a person of history. In fact, there's an encouragement here to go back and just read the whole Gospel of Mark because you learn about Jesus of Nazareth. So just that phrase, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, points us back to the whole story of the life of Jesus. And that's the first thing we know from the angel. But look at the second thing he said. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. This is a, this is a reference to what Bono talked about when he said, I saw where death died. I saw where death was defeated when Christ was crucified on Calvary, on Golgotha. The question about that is, why did that happen? And we have to go back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Mark has talked about this. And he quotes Jesus talking about his own death. Now listen to these words. This is really key to get the message of the death of Christ. Jesus said this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. So what was, what was really happening on the cross? It wasn't just that Jesus was a martyr. It wasn't just that he was a victim. It wasn't just that it was noble. But it was actually that Jesus was 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 delivered up to death by the predetermined plan of God because he came to be a ransom for many, that is a ransom for you and a ransom for me so that we could be forgiven for our sins. That is why Jesus came to the cross. Now you can't get, you can't get to that through empirical evidence like we talked about under the first point. You get to that by faith. You listen to the word of God and you understand that is what Christ did. But the power of that will change your life. The power of the cross will change your life. And I'll tell you why. What is the greatest need in our world today? What is the greatest need? I believe that at least one of the greatest needs in our world today is the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. And that is the heart of Christianity. That is the message of the cross. That is the message of the gospel that when Jesus died, he made it possible for ordinary human beings like you and me to be reconciled to God, what the Bible calls peace with God. And beyond that, he, offer, he makes it possible for people then on that basis to forgive one another. And I tell you what, forgiveness will heal a marriage. Forgiveness will heal a friendship. Forgiveness will heal a nation. Forgiveness will help Will, will, will change your life. And that is what Christ did for us on the cross. So that's the third thing you want to see, or the second thing you want to see. Number one, Jesus of Nazareth, and then he was crucified. And then you see one more thing in this passage. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, and then he says, he is, has risen, he is not here see the place where they have laid him. And so he goes, goes on and he makes this great announcement that we've been singing about this morning, that he is risen from the dead. That is good news for the believer for a number of reasons. Number one, the resurrection proves that what Bono said is true. That's where death died. That would have just been an ordinary human being dying had he not risen from the dead. But because he rose from the get dead, the good news is that if we place our faith in Christ we know that God accepted the ransom, the debt that was paid, and we can be completely forgiven and reconciled to God apart from anything else. You guys, this is what sets apart 
Christianity from every religion in the world because there is no other religion where you have a savior who died. There is no other religion where the tomb is empty and the founder of the religion has been raised from the dead. But Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ lives today. And what that means to your life, what that means for you if you place your faith in Christ is not only that your sins will be forgiven, but also he will raise you up. The book of Ephesians says that if you believe in Christ, not only is Christ raised, but he will raise your soul from spiritual death to spiritual life, and you will experience new life and a new birth the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. So that is the good news of the gospel. You know, it's interesting. There was a, the guy that won the, uh, the Masters golf tournament was a guy by the name of Scotty Scheffler. Now, athletes and Grammy winners and Oscar winners talking about their faith in God, those things are a dime a dozen and we might roll our eyes when, when they do that. And a lot of times we get the impression that what, what people are saying is if I give my life to Christ, I'll, you know, I'll get a hole in one, I'll win a golf tournament, I'll win a baseball game, I'll win an Oscar. But that's not what Scotty Scheffler said when he talked about his faith. And I thought, this was, I thought this was pretty powerful. When he was interviewed after he won the Masters and he talked about his life, he said it goes back to my faith. You see, his wife had told them that even if you're just 10 shots back and you lose this miserably, I will still love you and Jesus will love you. And Scotty Scheffler said, my identity is not a golf score. My identity is not a golf score. You take somebody like Scotty Scheffler, you take somebody like Bono who said when he went through that grief, he said there was this big hole in my heart and the only thing that would fill that hole in, in my heart was God's love. One more thing we wanna say about the gospel being good news for the believer is, you know, there might be a lot of us in this room who were raised to believe in Jesus, but we've basically been drifting from the faith. And we've been living lives that didn't back up what we said that we believe. But in this passage, one I think we see something very interesting, I wanna point it out to you. Look at verse seven. It says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Why does he say, uh, go tell his disciples and Peter, why would he do that? Well, Peter, just a few days before, had denied Christ three times. He'd said, I would never deny you, but he denied Jesus three times. So not only did all the disciples flee, but Peter himself had denied Jesus, and yet Jesus still wants him, Jesus still pursues him, Jesus still goes after him. And it's almost as if, and I, I I don't even know if I should say this, but it's almost like he said, go tell his disciples and Will Smith. Go tell, you know, you think of a guy that just does something totally wrong, and I, and I think about, about Will Smith, this sort of celebrated event where he, you know, where he uh, slapped Chris Rock the, at the Oscars, and you think of the shame, and you think of the guilt, and you think of how, how wrong that truly was. But when I look at that, I look at my life and I says, there's a Will Smith inside of me. There is an angry person inside of Mike Tilly and I need Jesus to say to me, Mike, you've been off the reservation, but go tell the disciples and Mike 
that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. And so put your name in there. Put your name in there and see it. There's no reason for us to sit in judgment of Will Smith. Put our own name in there and realize that he comes and no matter what you've done, if you return to Jesus, it's go tell my disciples and then stick your name in there and realize that Jesus welcomes you back. And that is good news. That is great news for the believer. One last thing we'll see in this story and we'll wrap it up. Not only is this passage good news for the skeptic and good news for the one who believes, but the last thing we'll say is that this is good news for the world. Because what happened in Galilee? They were in Jerusalem. Galilee was up north. They were supposed to go up to Galilee. And Jesus said, I will meet you there. And he got the band back together. He got the disciples back together, including Peter. And, he's, and he gave them this, a mission. And Jesus wanted the whole world to hear through them. He wanted not only them to know about this message, but he wanted the whole world to hear the good news of the resurrection and the good news of Jesus. A lot of us look at the, the injustice in the world, we look at, the, at all the things that are happening around the world, and we go, the world is a mess. And we ask, why doesn't God do something at the, about the world? And what we would say is this, in answer to that question, God has done something on the cross. God has already done something to deal with evil and to deal with death in the world. But not only that, Jesus will do something. Because of the resurrection, Revelation 21.1 says that Christ will create, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear. And as Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings, everything sad will come untrue because of the resurrection of Christ. I close with this one little story just to uh, capture it before we, before we wrap things up. When I was, uh, gosh, when I was just a little kid, less than five years old, my family lived in Houston, Texas. And my dad used to take us fishing at a fishing town called Bayport over by the Gulf of Mexico. And I'll never forget one time when our dad took us fishing and uh, he was, we were on this sort of, uh, this walkway above a very deep part overlooking at where my dad would fish. My dad had a brand new rod and reel. He was just so proud of it. It was so valuable to him. And while he was fishing, he dropped his rod and reel. Remember, it was a very deep, deep part of the water and he dropped his rod and reel down into the water. Well, that rod and reel was so valuable to my dad that he, uh, without thinking too much about it, he went ahead and he took off all his clothes except his bathing suit, and he decided to dive down to retrieve his rod and reel. Now, it was really deep. It was really dark down in there. In fact, there was a lot of broken glass down there. My dad couldn't even see what was going on, but he, he wanted to dive down to get that rod and that reel and to bring it back up. So I'm his son. I'm his son watching my dad go down in there. I'm just a little kid. I'm less than five years old, and I'm watching all this happen. And sure enough, my dad comes back up out of the water, and what he's, what he's got in his hands is he not only has the rod and the reel, but because he encountered all this broken glass, he's got blood on his hands. And yet my dad has come up out of the water. Now what do I learn from that story? How does that, how does that story illustrate the gospel? Well, number one, it illustrates the fact that that is, in a much greater way, that is what Christ did for us. We were lost, we had fallen, he came down to this earth, Jesus of Nazareth. 
and he went down and it, just, it wasn't just that he got his hands bloody, but he died and he shed his blood for our sins and he came and he rose back from the dead and it also illustrates, just as that rod and reel was so valuable to my dad, why did Jesus do all of this? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he rise from, dead, rise from the dead? He did it because you and I are of great value to him. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. And so we watch that scene, we watch that story, like the disciples, we watch his death, but he came up, not out of the water, but he came up out of the grave, and he is alive today, and he brings us with him. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, so much. We've been greeting each other today by saying happy Easter. We've been saying Christ has risen, he has risen indeed. We have sung these songs. But Lord, I pray now that the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, like what happened with C.S. Lewis, would happen with each one of us that in our hearts we would look at these great truths, that we would look at this story and have our lives changed because we believe what Christ did for us and it's in his name that we pray.